This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to another exciting episode of Ghost Stories. I'm really enjoying everything that I'm busy doing with Satrix at the moment. And I know that if you're listening to this, you've been enjoying it as well. You would have noticed some really great content from Satrix in Ghostmail. We've had some podcasts, we've had some articles, we've met a couple of really smart people from Satrix. And I think more of the same today. So funny story before I introduce my guest, as he just pointed out to me before we uh, started recording, he noticed either on YouTube or somewhere on you know the good old World Wide Web, someone had commented wondering, if the finance ghost's true identity is uh, none other than Kinsley Williams of uh, Satrix, the chief investment officer there. Uh, Kinsley, you are on this podcast with me, so I'm not so talented that I can be two voices having a conversation with myself. So I think we can safely dispel this myth. Yeah, well, I think let the listeners decide whether our voices are that similar or not. But yeah, I hope I don't have a reputation for talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, and I think the compliance department at Satrix can also calm down because you are not, in fact, the finance ghost in the in the early hours of the night. Exactly. <laughs> but you are in ghost mail and you wrote a really cool article for us and the readers all around, I guess, investment bias, behavioral finance, cognitive bias, you'll see all kinds of different terms thrown around for this. And obviously, these things are slightly different. But I think they all come down to, at the end of the day, the psychology behind investment decision making, but also the way we live our lives. Something I appreciated about your article, you know, you gave the example of the Springboks and the way we think about, you know, referee calls in the context of, you know, the rugby team we all support. There's so many wonderful examples from our day-to-day lives of cognitive bias. And it's, it's a particular area of interest for me that's why I'm very excited to be doing this with you today because you know for people listening to the show it doesn't just have benefits to your investing it actually has benefits to your life if you understand this stuff I don't know if you'd agree with that no 100% correct and I must firstly just give uh, a lot of credit to Niku who you spoke to last he and I have had great fun working on this topic and preparing the presentation which we delivered at investment forum over the last two weeks. And out of that work came the article which Niku was very involved in uh, putting together. But yeah, I mean, errors of judgment and how we go about making decisions in a complex world faced with almost infinite uncertainty is a fascinating topic. And it's interesting to see how people navigate that and how they go about making those decisions. So I think this topic is, is quite interesting to sort of shine a light on what we don't necessarily consciously think about. Absolutely. Kudos to Niku. I really enjoyed that last podcast with him as well. I would definitely encourage listeners to go back and find it and the one before that with Sia as well where we talked about China so I'm really I'm enjoying the content coming through from Satrix so I guess let's get into it you know how important is behavioral finance in this world of investing or is this very much just a personal finance concept I think that term behavioral finance tends to find application in personal finance but you think it belongs in investing as well I think it does. You know, the whole notion of behavioral finance, and I think we're going to get into this a bit later on in terms of how we make decisions and biases that we have, is it all comes down to errors of judgment. And it's vital that we're aware of those when we make decisions, and even more so when we're making investing decisions, so that we ultimately protect us from ourselves, because 
we're the ones that can end up making decisions that harm our investments and our long-term prospects. So I, I do take your point that, yes, there's a lot of application in the world of personal finance. But at the end of the day, investing involves people and people may be managing their own portfolios or they may be choosing which funds to invest in. And all of those require making decisions when faced with enormous amounts of information. And as I mentioned earlier, living in an uncertain world where nothing is a guarantee. Sorry, I was just laughing at the thought of you know, protect me from myself. You've just triggered that memory of that fantastic <laughs> video. Everyone will now know exactly what I'm talking about. Of that SARS IT boss who was talking about, you know, protect me from yourself. I think that's actually a great way to remember what cognitive bias, behavioral finance really is. It's when your psychology just gets in the way and you make these irrational decisions and you go about things the wrong way and you can end up turning a problem into a bigger problem or potentially taking a winner turning it into a loser uh, it, it's tough you know this is and this is why the markets are full of emotion when people talk about you know the market the point is the market is made up of a whole bunch of people out there doing stuff and those people all have cognitive biases they all have these you know psychological nuances and that's what makes the markets exciting, right? Otherwise, every answer would always just be right. It would be terribly boring. Exactly. And that's what I was keep re-emphasizing, that there's so much uncertainty, so much unknown, and the dynamics are constantly changing. So it's almost impossible to make a decision. And, and we don't want to be, end up in that place because we have to make decisions. And I think we'll get into this uh, in our discussion on how we can be prone to uh, you know, taking shortcuts and ending up making the wrong decision because of these biases. And this is what gives, uh, gives rise to this whole notion of behavioral finance. Yeah, we'll get into the cognitive stuff now. I mean, I'll give a good example of a behavioral bias in personal finance so people understand what we're talking about. You know, you've probably heard someone say, well, I never had that hundred bucks anyway, so I may as well spend it. Or this hundred rand is for that, but therefore it's not for that. And so it's somehow different. It, it's still a hundred rand. It's completely fungible. You can very easily do something different with it. It doesn't matter where it came from. So these are examples of the funny things. You know, this is my birthday money, hence I'll spend it on something I probably don't need. But if I'd earned that money myself, no chance, you know, it's just humanity, right? That's exactly what it is. Exactly right. Yeah, we tend to compartmentalize things and come up with uh, arbitrary rules on how we value things. And uh, yeah, I, I think we'll share some fun examples in our discussion. Yeah, so let's get into that. I'm keen to I'm keen to dig in. I don't know which bias you want to start with first, but I think there's a couple that you've highlighted in the article. And you know, this is not going to be a rehash of the article, so don't switch off now if you've read it. But uh, this is going to be a much deeper and, and I think more interactive discussion. So I'll let you just pick which one you want to start with. Let's get into it. Yeah, maybe before we delve into the, you know, the specifics of each of the biases, I, I thought it'd be useful to bring your listeners' attention to perhaps one of the great works that's been done in this space, if, if anyone's interested in reading more about it. And it's a, a book that you may have come across or you may have heard about from Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, he's actually a psychologist and an economist. So, uh, I mean, we're talking about cognitive biases, very much about how we as human beings make decisions. Uh, but he actually won the 2002 Nobel Prize in economics for his work on behavioral anomalies and cognitive biases. So he, he spoke a lot about uh, system one and system two ways of thinking. So they're not different parts of the brain. They're the way in which we make decisions in, an, in a quick way or whether we think about them slowly and deliberately and do the hard work of working through all the implications of uh, to arrive at the right answer. Um, I think the important thing is that, you know, both those different ways of thinking, you know, so more intuitive, emotional type response when we're needing to make a decision or a more deliberate, effortful, logical approach to making a decision, both of those are prone to error. 
But system one is obviously more likely to make those errors because of the biases we have, and it tends to be the lazy way in which we, most of us, approach making decisions. So, so I wanted to just sort of provide that context, and I think your, your listeners will find that book quite interesting if they haven't read it already. Another interesting resource is also a, a site that came across called the decisionlab.com, and they've got a whole section on biases, and you can delve in. There's a, literally an article on lots of different biases. Uh, there's an article for each different bias. So if anyone's interested, they can go and read more about those as well. But in terms of the work that we did, you know, what are the biases which we think are quite relevant to what Satrix offers our investor base and our clients? Maybe I can start off with uh, the first one is a superiority bias. This is quite an interesting one. Perhaps in the uh, investment professional world, this is something that we are probably susceptible to as investment professionals. And it, it, it speaks a little bit to the being better than average effect and talks a little bit about how everyone's looking for that winner and that outperformance uh, with their funds. And, uh, you know, I think a, a great real world example would be how hardly anyone in the audience, when I asked the question, who rates themselves as, as a below average driver, stuck up their hand. They were one or two honest people. <laughs> so I said, OK, well, maybe it's because we're all financial service professionals. It's just, you know we naturally demand a lower premium from our insurers when we drive because we're just so brilliant. So then I said, okay, amongst yourselves, amongst your colleagues and your peers, you know, who rates themselves as a below average driver? And again, there were even fewer hands that went up. So, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that we all have that inherent bias that we think we're better than average. We think we're better than the person next to us or we at least strive to be. And it's particularly prevalent in the financial world where there's this constant objective to try and outperform and pick a winning trade and add alpha and outperformance relative to everyone else. Talks to competitiveness as well, doesn't it, right? People want to be, and, and I think maybe financial services in particular, and maybe people are interested in the markets. Maybe there is just, you know, within that subset of humanity, there, we just find a lot of people who are a little bit more competitive by nature, perhaps, and therefore it become, and, and perhaps the other thing is, you know, you can actually measure success in the markets. It's one of the few places where you can actually really measure. You either did or you didn't make more money than the person next to you. Like, there's no debate, like, were you a nice person along the way, or any of the other stuff in your performance review in a corporate. It's literally, bam, that was my percent, that was yours, end of story. But what's really interesting about that concept is, yes, you can easily measure it, but the reality is that there's going to be a distribution of uh, returns and winners and losers. So not, by definition, not everyone can be better than average. So, and for every... Uh, outperforming fund or trade that you may have implemented or done, someone else has underperformed or there's an underperforming fund. And, and, and where it really starts to get quite interesting is when you start looking at it from that perspective, and this leverages off uh, work that William Sharp did back in, in a paper called The Arithmetic of Active Management back in 1991. And what's interesting is when you start applying costs to that distribution, all of the available returns shift lower, right, or shift to the left. And so if your market benchmark represented the average, which theoretically it should, to the extent that that's the investable opportunity set, what you find is that the available funds that anyone can invest in, only a minority of those will actually outperform the market benchmark just because of costs involved with trading, management fees, advice fees, etc. The list goes on. So 
it's actually the contrary. Only a very small, it's not even half that are better than the average. Only a small minority are better than the average. And this speaks a little bit to why, from a Satrix perspective, we love index funds because they're very cost-effective vehicles. So they control one of those things that you can actually control, which is keeping the costs low. So yes, an index fund may also underperform its market benchmark, but it's going to typically be a lot more cost-effective than the range of offerings you can choose from across the industry. I'll tell you the other cost that people don't talk about, which is the difference when you have to pay tax every time you churn. So I'm a very, very real example of this now. Transaction capital, we all knew looked expensive. No one, no matter what anyone says on Twitter, no one thought it was going to behave like it's behaved in the last week. I refuse to believe that. Yes, there were risks. Yes, the valuation looked expensive. I mean, we've all seen what's happened like that. No one expected that. But you know, the point here is, yes, it looked expensive. Yes, I would have loved to have trimmed exposure, but I've only held it for less than three years. So then I would have paid maximum marginal income tax rate. And you're giving SARS a very big percentage of that gain anyway. So it becomes a case of, okay, well, even if it just carries on sideways past the three-year mark, and then I can sell it and pay capital gains tax instead, you know, you've actually created a return for yourself by just bringing your tax rate down. No such problem among sort of CISs that don't pay tax, etc. So it's just another example of a cost. And that's unfortunately something that retail investors are really up against. I sometimes think you almost need to look at this as a retail investor and go, well, you know, when I'm playing in single stocks, I need to almost think almost like a trader. You need to be prepared to actually get in and out. Don't worry too much about the tax. Go with your gut and then have the rest of your portfolio sitting in more diversified stuff like ETFs that can just run because this concept of you know being too worried about the tax this is now the second time it's burnt me where i should have just sold paid the tax moved on gone with my gut and now instead <laughs> you know i wish i had a gain to actually pay any tax on that would be nice yeah exactly uh, it, it sounds a little bit like this touches on one of those other biases which is anchoring bias and uh, i think we know exactly what this is uh, when we go to the shops and we see things on sale marked down 50 percent and the original price marked on an item. But we, we're never really sure if that is the true value of, of the item. So we're anchored to that, and we see this 50% discount on the item, which may or may not be good value. It may, it, it may be off a much higher base. And so in, in actual fact, it's not a 50% discount. You could find the same good somewhere else at a much lower base price. So it speaks a little bit to anchoring, and I think in the world of investing, it speaks about how we like to avoid making a loss. So if we if we do a trade and that trade is not in the green, we might be hesitant to sell out of that because uh, we went into that trade knowing that, you know, w with an expectation of making a gain and a profit. So if that's not made us a profit, then we sort of hold on to it and hope for the best. When in reality, if you're looking at a portfolio, you should be evaluating all the opportunities available to you and making sure that your portfolio is optimally structured and that you uh, look at it as uh, what is going to give me the best expected return going forward. I think another classic example is, uh, you know, if you've purchased a house and you own a house and now you're looking to sell that, you're anchored to the price you bought it at. But there are many bigger variables at play which might make that anchoring point completely irrelevant. The whole market may have shifted lower. So you can buy a better house in another neighborhood near your area for much cheaper now because, let's say, interest rates have gone up than you could have done a year ago. But we anchor ourselves to the price we bought the house at and the improvements we've made and the expected return we were hoping to get. And so, yeah, that's how it plays out in reality. Anchoring bias is fascinating. It's such an important negotiation tool in private deals. Uh, I remember from my corporate finance days, it's, it's really important to understand the other side's mindset, stuff like what did they pay? 
It's a huge part of the negotiation. No one wants to crystallize a loss. And a silly real-life example was my Nando's order earlier because uh, my card wouldn't go through on Bolt. So I thought, well, let me try and order it directly from Nando's. And I was so chuffed with the price because, you know, I know that the aggregators ramp the menu price. So do the restaurants when you order directly, but buy less. So you go in and, you know, if I had no idea that the prices are potentially higher when you order online, it might have irritated me. But actually, I was so anchored to what the aggregators will charge that I'd actually forgotten what the correct menu price is on Nando's. And I thought, oh, it's exactly the same as it is in store. Someone corrected me on Twitter. No, it's actually slightly higher, but only slightly. That's anchoring bias 101. I went in there anchored to, oh, this is going to cost me a lot more. It doesn't. Amazing. (laughs) And, And Nando's wins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, uh, we ran a little bit of an experiment in the investment forum presentation. So I had a big jar of jelly beans and a classic experiment of uh, getting everyone in the audience to guess how many beans were in the jar. So that was a good test of two biases. Coming back to superiority bias and people thinking they're better than average, we actually split the groups, you know, into to, to men and women to vote separately. And uh, we let the first group vote. And it was amazing how close the average is to the true number. So it's not that the average, you know, is necessarily that half of the people are going to be better than the average and the other half are going to be worse. The average can often be a very, very good estimate of the true value of something. And so so that showed up quite clearly. But then with the second group, we got them to answer a different question, which was whether there were more or less than a given number of jelly beans in the jar. And we deliberately made that number higher. And it was fascinating to see the results. The, the average in the second group was much higher overall. So anchoring just worked there because we just asked a simple question and put a number out there which people gravitated around or tended to gravitate around. Before I let you move on to the next bias, you reminded me of something I saw. I think it was on Twitter at some point. I wish I knew the source now. But uh, something to the effect of, you know, be careful with averages. If you've got one leg in the fire and one in a bucket of ice, on average, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> in, real, in real life, you're not so fine. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a great, uh, just a great concept around averages. That's well, well exactly. worth remembering. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kinsey, let's move on to another bias. Uh, what's top of mind for you next? Which one should we talk about? Yeah, I think one that's very interesting, and uh, I think it typifies a lot of the behavioral anomalies that we find in the market is confirmation bias. And really, this speaks to you know the inadequate incorporation of new information due to pre-existing beliefs. So this is where uh, system one in our brains has free reign. Uh, we use heuristics, we use mental shortcuts, we use rules of thumb to make decisions because let's be honest, there's just too much information, too much hard work to be done to make a decision any other way. And there's too much uncertainty. And you know, we wouldn't be able to function in life if we had to process all of that information analytically in order to get to the right answer. So we need to be able to make decisions this way. But the problem is that, and, and uh, my dad actually uses this saying quite a lot, is that uh, human beings have an incredible ability to justify just about anything. And I think it speaks a lot to confirmation bias. We tend to be slow to adopt new information or uh, paradigms that um, new information which may be contradictory to our paradigm and the way in which we use those rules of thumb and heuristics and mental shortcuts to arrive at decisions. It's easier for us to stick with our pre-existing beliefs. And I think in the world of what Satrix offers clients, one of the statements which we often come up against in the industry is that uh, passive investing or index tracking is guaranteed to underperform. But coming back to that uh, distribution of returns that I was talking about that William Sharp 
spoke about in the arithmetic of active management. What's quite interesting is that because of costs, index funds you find quite consistently deliver outperformance above the average because they have that cost advantage, which really starts to come to the fore you know, when you give that a medium-term horizon and those costs get to, to compound. So you know, that's just a classic statement of where you might have the belief that, well, the premise of an actively managed fund is to deliver alpha, right? That's its premise. So therefore, that must be the only way in which you can deliver outperformance. But when you start looking at the industry holistically and as an aggregate and in totality, obviously not everyone can be better than the average, firstly. And secondly, the index funds which don't aim to deliver alpha, because they have that cost advantage, structurally deliver better than average performance over the medium to long term. So yeah, quite interesting how our paradigms can be challenged by those uh, contradictions. Absolutely. And confirmation bias was the premise for my most read article ever, which was about immigration, actually. Uh, when I still had Ghostmail as a weekly, and then I actually re-released the article when Ghostmail became a daily publication. And it's by far the most read article, which tells you everything about, unfortunately, the South African mindset. But the point there is when people move overseas, right, you never have to look too far to find an expat who will tell you how everything about South Africa is terrible and everything about, you know, fill in the blank, whether it's London or Canada or Australia or, you know, wherever they've gone is perfect. And the reason I think at least is it's confirmation bias. They desperately, desperately need that to be the case because they've upended their entire life. You know, they've left behind all their friends, the rest of their family, their jobs, They've completely rolled the dice on this for the sake of their kids. And respect to those who do, this is definitely not an immigration bashing session. I'm just pointing out the confirmation bias is a big part of the story there. They need to go to sleep at night knowing they did the right thing because otherwise, how do you wake up the next morning and feel happy? And the only way you can do that is by having this very, very positive outlook on where you are now and a very negative outlook on what you've left behind. I think people do it in their personal relationships as well. You know, your new relationship is perfect. Your old relationship, everything's wrong. You know, it takes a lot of emotional maturity to lift your head and go, actually, not everything was wrong, but obviously on average, it was more wrong than right. Otherwise, I'd still be in it. And ditto on sort of the new relationship, but going the other way. So this is, again, it's psychology. It's just incredibly interesting. Yeah, what I uh, find interesting with your, with your story there about immigration is we actually spoke a little bit about uh, anchoring bias as well, but it's great that you've made the analogy uh, or, or the association with confirmation bias uh, in, you know, particularly relevant in, you know, in the institutional investing world. So perhaps not as relevant to, to your listeners, but something that consumes a lot of my headspace is uh, when we build balanced funds for clients, those need to generally be Reg 28 compliant in order to be eligible for inclusion in your RA or your retirement annuity and similarly for institutional investors to use within pension funds. And the regulations recently changed to allow for higher offshore exposure, up to 45%. And right there could be an anchoring bias because, you know, particularly if you're pessimistic on South Africa, you see all the headline news, you know, the media is obviously going to generally lead with bad news. If it bleeds, it leads. That's going to occupy the front pages. And so... You know, your natural bias could very easily be that, well, you know, investing offshore is going, you know, is the way to generate superior returns. And you could be anchored to that higher allocation to offshore than actually may make sense within a fort, you know, within a well-diversified portfolio. Yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense. I love that. If it bleeds, it leads. I've never heard that before. That's brilliant. And that is unfortunately a sad summary of a lot of the media out there. You are not wrong. That's for sure. There's so many of these sort of biases that we can talk about 
today. I mean, literally, we could spend the whole day on it and we don't have time for that and no one wants to listen to a 10-hour podcast. But one of the ones that I definitely do want to cover while we have time from your article is action bias, which I, I think is, a, is, I mean, again, I can see it in my own behavior. I can see it in the behavior of other people I know in the markets, even professional investors. Like no one is safe from this stuff. I think that's another whole topic actually. Uh, but before we get to that, maybe you know a little bit of an understanding around action bias would be great. Sure. So from a definition perspective, it's you know propensity to act and do something, even when doing nothing, may actually be the most favorable or sensible decision to make in that situation. Um, I think a lot of what action bias speaks to is also, you know, your time horizon. So often we think in the now. Um, we want to do something now. We need to solve what's happening right now. And it's very much about short-termism rather than playing the longer game. So I think some real-world examples would be the lane switches when you're in traffic. I don't know if I'm the only person that derives a certain amount of pleasure when I'm stayed in my lane and you're seeing all the other people weaving in and out and you know, ending up not really much further ahead of you, probably use twice the amount of fuel and are probably a whole lot more stressed when they get home. But <laughs> I derive a certain amount of pleasure about, you know, just staying in the lane and just sort of staying the course, as it were. I think another example that uh, Niku used from his time overseas was, you know, waiting for the express train uh, rather than catching the first train that comes through the station. Your your inclination is to is to want to act and and get going with your journey because you know maybe you're running late maybe it's horrible weather you just want to get going towards your destination but you know knowing that actually i should wait because there's a faster train coming in 10 minutes that's going to get me there 10 minutes before this one does uh, is it goes against our instinct to act and want to do something and uh yeah i think that you know if we bring it back to the world of investing back in 1975 so this was a long time ago before i was born the same <laughs> yeah, the same William Sharp wrote an article about the likely gains from market timing. And uh, he posited that one needed to be right 74% of the time to consistently time markets correctly. And that was back in a world where I would argue was far less globally connected, far less real time with data at our fingertips. I suspect that those odds have gone up significantly, that you've got to have to be a right, you know, a lot more than that to actually profit from timing market. And, and the reason we refer to that is because we actually see it playing out in our balanced funds. So we stick to a strategic asset allocation. We don't sort of tactically try and reposition the fund uh, as, you know, as there may be occasion to do uh, as, as, as market news unfolds. We stick to a strategic asset allocation. Yes, we do review that periodically, say once every two years, but you know, within that period, we stick to that strategic asset allocation. We're not trying to time markets. And over the medium to long term, that fund has been up in the top decile of performers a quarter of the time. I mean, that is a really, really difficult place to deliver performance and achieve performance without trying to time market. So I think that speaks to uh, what we call this masterly inactivity, which in our view is a greatly underappreciated concept. And uh, I think something that we would do well to put into practice more in our lives. I assume the self-same William Sharp was responsible for the Sharp ratio. It's the very, same, it's the very same Sharp, exactly. Yeah, I figured as much. So Action bias is, a, is another fun one. The best example I can think of is when you're waiting to board a plane 
and then it's you know it's time to board and people like literally run to the gates to go and stand in a queue to get on the exact same plane that <laughs> literally everyone will be allowed onto every single person who is there at the gate is going to get on this plane but this will not stop people literally fighting <laughs> for their place in the queue <laughs> to leave at exactly the same time <laughs> it's my it's my best thing about humanity, I think, overall. Yeah, I, I think if there's one good thing that came out of COVID, it's the fact that now when the plane pulls up to its gate at the airport, the air stewards and hostesses tell you to stay in your seat because that was another action bias. As soon as the plane stops and the seatbelt light goes off, everyone stands up and sort of has their head sideways underneath the bins above you where your bag is stored, you know, waiting to get off the plane. But actually, you can just stay in your seat, be comfortable, you're all going to get off actually exactly in the same amount of time. So that's one of the positives, I guess, we can take from COVID is they now let you disembark three rows at a time. So we're grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, one of the few positives. Another investing example of action bias being so well managed. So Sabvest released their update this week. And I was so impressed. You know, you read down in their release and eventually you get to a simple comment. One sentence. We believe we are fully invested at this time. That's it. We are, basically, we are going to do nothing. And that's okay for the next however many months. And if anyone has an issue with that, just go look at their track record. Yeah. And there's just far too many people who just feel they need to do something. They need to churn or they need to show that they are earning their fee because inaction attracts criticism, right? Well, what are you, why should we pay you? What did you do this mm. year? Mm. You know, we would have far preferred you to take lots of action and lose 20%, but at least we can see what you're doing for your salary exactly. <laughs> or your management yeah. fee. <laughs> you yeah. know? And that's, a, that's another example. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, as you're talking about churning and um, this propensity to act, we've done some analysis and uh, Niku looked at this and produced some great charts on how little persistence there is in fund performance. And so he's done some very smart statistical calcs on the correlation of previous winners versus winners in a current year. And it's, it's low and you can actually view it visually, the funds that did well in prior years end up being at the bottom of the rankings in subsequent years. Uh, and it becomes very random on, you know, what's going to do well in a particular year. So I think the lesson from that is decide what your investment strategy is going to be and stick to it and, and, and let the markets work behind the scenes to do what they should do, which is a long-term process for those returns to unfold. I mean, theoretically, for actively managed funds to beat the market every single year, you're going to have to churn your portfolio extensively because what worked last year is now valued far more highly going into this year. You almost need to constantly be cutting winners and finding tomorrow's winners consistently enough to get past the fees and churn and with enough foresight to be able to beat the average. Now, of course, that's very difficult. And I think part of the appeal for the entire fund management industry, but also for individuals who like to manage their own money, there's, there's an element of fun. I think it's the lane changing example. It's the concept of, well, if I do this, just maybe I'll get this right. Look how clever I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as opposed to just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah. The human, it's action bias and it's the excitement of maybe I'll actually nail this, you know, and it becomes a hobby for a lot of people, which I'm equally, I don't even, I'm not even going to say guilty because I don't believe of all the hobbies you can have in this world, geez, there are far worse hobbies than taking joy from investing. I mean, that that's without a doubt, you know. I just think what I always say to people is just have that mix of ETFs in your portfolio so you're getting beta and then have a pot of money that you play with. Just don't sure. cry if you lose some of it. You know, I'm not going to sob myself to sleep over transaction capital this week. Yes, it's very irritating. But 
my position sizing is stuff that always such that my kid is still going to go to school one day. I'm not betting the farm. That's the one other thing that I also always look at is people with these very high conviction portfolios. For me, there's, is it success bias, I suppose, or survivorship bias? You know, they'll look at people who have done that and made a fortune and go and see, that's what works. Okay, great. We should do the same thing with startups. I can also point to a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. I'll tell you how hard that life is, you know, and there's a hell of a lot of people who are absolute failures. That startup life is very much that high conviction sort of portfolio, except the difference is at least you have control over your own startup. You can look at transaction capital and think, wow, this was great. SA Taxi, great business, the whole shebang. And then this thing blows up in your face. Uh, because you were just too far from the underlying details and suddenly you bomb 70% of your portfolio. You never recover from that, ever. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, the bias, uh, one of the terms, I mean, there's so many, but uh, I think the one you're speaking of is uh, optimism bias, where we rate our own abilities to add value, to make good decisions. But yeah, the, I think the results speak for themselves. And coming back to the persistence or lack of persistence in fund performance, I've yet to come across investors in funds who are gonna sell their manager because they've done well. But yet that's exactly what's likely to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. You've done so well, thanks, cheers, on taking my money. That's, in, that's incredible. So I think as part of wrapping this up, and this has been such a fun show, and I really hope the listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have, because there's a lot to learn from this. I made a point earlier, no one is safe from this bias. I don't care how you know successful you are as an investor or an entrepreneur or whatever it is you do with your life. Bias is a reality, it's part of being human. In your view, Kinsley, how do we manage it? You know, is there a way to actually just get past it? I mean, you've mentioned some resources at the start of the show that people can go and, and, and read more perhaps, but what would you say are the, the high level ways to actually stop bias hurting you on a consistent basis? Yeah, so the, as I mentioned, those books are, uh, and, and resources are great things to be aware, and I think that's where the journey starts, is being aware of the fact that we are subject to these biases. We all have them. I, I was thinking about your question a little bit, and I think one of the things that personally I value is, is an attitude of humility about our level of skill and expertise, for example, to achieve our performance opportunities consistently, particularly within financial markets. And you know, I think that humility comes with recognizing that we are prone to making mistakes and judgment errors um, or errors in judgment. And, you know, punting what Satrix does in the sense that uh, it gives you that broad market diversified exposure. It focuses on the long term indexation very much lends itself to that, which is what Satrix focuses on. Uh, and it keeps costs low, which ultimately is uh, heard someone say that's one of the most guaranteed forms of alpha you can ever harness is having low costs in your investment strategy. Um, and the results bear it out. We've, we've been managing index funds for you know, over 20 years now, and some of those funds have got very decent track records. And you see it over the medium to long term, how they just compound the, that low fee benefit uh, relative to what the industry collectively is able to deliver. Yeah, so I think, I think those would be a few of my tips or you know, how we can use them to protect ourselves coming back to our earlier introduction. <laughs> yeah, it certainly makes sense. I mean, again, I'm appreciating that obviously Satrix is a brand partner to Ghostmail, but I don't work with people who, you know, I don't, unless I believe in what they're doing and there's a mutual respect, you know, and I absolutely believe in what you guys do. And I own Satrix ETFs myself. In fact, a Satrix ETF was the first thing that I ever bought on the market. That was really what started my journey into investing in equities ultimately. So, you know, if anyone listening to this, this doesn't mean go and, you know, give up on the fun of the markets and go and put everything in an ETF or whatever the case may be. 
for one thing, choosing which ETF is also part of the fun of the markets because there's a lot of them. And the other thing is I think you can just take a rational approach, you know, have a pot of money that you, if you want to trade and you want to play around with technical analysis and everything else, then by all means, have a go. That stuff often works and it's fun. Absolutely. You know, if you want to try and pick the next SABVEST over the next 15 years, then do it. But just don't go crazy and don't believe you are so good and so smart and everyone else is so stupid that you will consistently get it right and put all your money in one basket and then you'll do it again and again and again. Those people blow themselves up eventually. It's borderline a guarantee. You have to be the luckiest person on the planet <laughs> to get that right over and over and over again. It doesn't work. No, well said. And another sort of concept which I think speaks a lot to this is that speaking to that humility within financial markets and investing is, you know, for you to be right, it means that another expert or professional or investor somewhere else in the world armed with you know, the same information, maybe even more real-time information than you has to be wrong. And so I think there, one needs to keep a healthy degree of humility, particularly when dealing with the markets. There are a lot of very, very smart people, a lot of very sophisticated algorithms and trading approaches, investment banks with a significant profit motive to act on information. So it's a dynamic place. So one needs to have a healthy degree of respect for the environment and the the pond that you're fishing in. <laughs> Absolutely. Kinsley, this has been such a fun chat. For those who want to follow you, see more of your work, you know, aside from when it lands in ghost mail, there's obviously lots more that you're busy with. Should they be following you on Twitter? Should they be hashtag grateful on LinkedIn? What is the, <laughs> what is the right approach? Yeah, um, hashtag grateful is the place you can find me. Uh, Kingsley Williams, you'll find me on LinkedIn under Satrix. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. I knew it was going to be, I knew you were going to upset me by saying LinkedIn. <laughs> I've, 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 uh, I've spent a little bit of time on Twitter watching what goes on there. And uh, yeah, I'm hashtag grateful I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> I, think, I think Twitter is for the lane changes <laughs> continuously. And then LinkedIn is definitely more for the sort of, I'm going to get there anyway. I, I almost feel like there's a great sorting hat in life for different personalities. But that's brilliant, Kinsey. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been fun. I look forward to releasing this out to the audience. And yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back at some point in the next few months. And I look forward to that. Brilliant. Thank Thanks you. so much. Satrix Investments, PTY Limited, is an approved financial services provider in terms of the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act, number 37 of 2002. Satrix Managers RF PTY Limited is a registered and approved manager in collective investment schemes in securities. The information in this podcast does not constitute financial advice in terms of phase. Consult your financial advisor before making any investment decision. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.